Today on Golden Girls Sports, the New York Jets win the biggest game in franchise history thanks to some Sophia Petrillo black magic. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby. Oh, Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. Big Daddy was the penultimate episode of the Golden Girls premiere season and first aired on May 3rd, 1986. It was written by Barry Finaro and Mort Nathan and directed by Terry Hughes. As Blanche attends to her elderly father and his sudden drive to become a country western singer, the rest of the girls get into a disagreement with a neighbor over a tree that's fallen into the lanai after a big storm. Mr. Barton refuses to haul the tree away, even though it was sitting on his property in the first place. Tensions escalate quickly, and Sophia does what any normal, right-thinking Sicilian would do. She puts a curse on him. Now you're going to pay. <laughs> What are you doing? It's the evil eye. I just put a Sicilian curse on you. You're not going to have a moment's peace till you hold that tree away. <laughs> you got me shaking in my boots. <laughs> oh, Ma, why'd you do that? You just made matters worse with that ridiculous curse. Ridiculous? The curse works, believe me. I've used it before. Uh, when? Baltimore Colts, New York Jets, 1969. Draw your own conclusion. <laughs> Despite Dorothy's skepticism, Bad stuff does mysteriously keep happening to Mr. Barton. His tire has been deflated, he's lost his golf clubs, his clocks are all going haywire, and he gets a boil on his butt. At the end of his rope, he begs Sophia to take off the curse, which she does on the condition that he takes care of the tree. As Mr. Barton agrees to the deal and gets the hell out of there, Mrs. Barton stays behind for a second to say that it was she who deflated the tire and took the clubs and set the clocks off. The boil was just luck. Mr. Barton was played by actor Gordon Jump, who almost needs no introduction if you recognize his voice from that clip. Best known as Arthur Carlson, the Mama's Boy station manager on WKRP in Cincinnati, Jump was pretty much on TV nonstop from the late 60s to the early 2000s. He had recurring roles on Lou Grant, Soap, Growing Pains, on top of many, many cameo appearances he did, such as the infamous child molestation episode of Different Strokes, in which he played a predatory bike store owner. Mr. Carlson, a.k.a. The Big Guy, was one of three characters from the original WKRP that were brought back for the 1990s revival series creatively titled The New WKRP in Cincinnati. Later in his career, Jump was George Costanza's boss at Play Now Toys, Mr. Thomas Sulo, and starred in over a decade's worth of commercials as the lonely, underworked Maytag repairman, which endeared him to an entirely new generation. Originally from Ohio, Jump attended Kansas State University and worked as an announcer, a weatherman, and a kid's show clown in Topeka. At 31 years old, he went to Hollywood to try his hand at acting, and from a role in the Daniel Boone series, started a career of walk-on parts in everything from sitcoms to cop shows to anthology series. I don't have any stats to back this up, but he might be the all-time leader in guest starring as different characters on the same series. Jump was on multiple episodes of The Brady Bunch, Green Acres, and The Doris Day Show, and he never played the same character twice. Gordon Jump passed away in 2003 of heart failure due to pulmonary fibrosis. There is probably an episode of a TV show with him in it playing somewhere right now.
Mrs. Gladys Barton was played by Peggy Pope, another familiar face and voice who's guest starred on a lot of TV series starting from the 60s as well. The Montclair, New Jersey native's second role was on an episode of Bewitched, and she later appeared on Barney Miller, Soap, Heart to Heart, Night Court, and about a million others, including one episode of Amanda's, the short-lived B. Arthur show, that was an American version of the British classic Faulty Towers. Pope had some big movie roles, too. She played the office alcoholic in 1980's 9 to 5, and later popped up on the spin-off TV version of the movie. She was also in The Last Starfighter, vampire comedy Once Bitten, and the movie adaptation of Chuck Palahniuk's Choke. Although he doesn't factor in the sports portion of the story, the titular big daddy in this episode was played by Murray Hamilton, the prolific Southern actor probably best known as the mayor of Amity in both Jaws and Jaws 2. Blanche's father, known to everybody as Big Daddy, appeared in two episodes of The Golden Girls, played by two separate actors. Hamilton died of lung cancer in September of 1986, and when the character's second season appearance came around in Big Daddy's Little Lady, he was played by actor David Wayne. If you're a fan of the 1966 Batman series, you'll probably remember Wayne better as the Mad Hatter. But let's get to today's central question. Did Sophia help the Jets to their greatest and pretty much only moment of glory in franchise history? Probably not. But there was some magic happening at the Orange Bowl in Miami on January 12, 1969. Magic and a game plan played to perfection. The Jets' 16-7 victory over the Baltimore Colts became eternal sports lore from the minute the game was over. The game now known as Super Bowl III was actually the first to use that title. The first two AFL-NFL World Championship games were decisive victories for the older, more established National Football League, with the Green Bay Packers obliterating the Kansas City Chiefs and Oakland Raiders in consecutive years. And so it was supposed to be the Colts who would carry on the tradition by obliterating the Jets. Baltimore was an 18-point favorite to beat New York, in part because they went 13-1 in the regular season and had made the big game by routing Cleveland 34-0 in the NFL championship. The Jets, on the other hand, went 11-3 and beat the Raiders 27-23 in the AFL championship game thanks to a fourth-quarter touchdown. Even with the media, the football establishment, and the bookies all against them, it was one lone Colts fan that may have made the most impactful anti-Jet statement. A heckler was giving New York quarterback Joe Namath the business at the Touchdown Club in Miami on the Thursday before the game. And after a couple of drinks, Namath told the guy, in earshot of a bunch of reporters, quote, we're going to win on Sunday. I guarantee it. No writer seemed to pay the incident much mind until Namath made good on the guarantee three days later and chiseled it into legend. But Broadway Joe wasn't the only one who believed the Jets could win that game. New York coach Weeb Eubank, who had previously led the Colts to two NFL championships, had shown his team so much tape on where Baltimore's weaknesses were that the Jets asked him to stop for fear of becoming overconfident. As for beating the Colts' defense, Eubank had said before the game that he hoped Baltimore would bring the blitzes they were known for. Quote, Joe reads the blitz very well. We like blitzing teams. Eubank told this to reporters, and the Colts still did it anyway. Namath was named MVP of the game, but he threw no touchdowns against the Colts. Instead, he beat them with efficiency, going 17 for 28 for 206 yards and routinely sidestepping those blitzes. Jets fullback Matt Snell ran for 121 yards and a first-quarter touchdown, and Jim Turner kicked three field goals. 
Meanwhile, the Jets' defense kept the Colts in check with cornerbacks Randy Beverly and Johnny Sample, who once played for the Colts, combining for three interceptions. In addition to the guarantee, Namath said before the game that Colts starter and NFL MVP Earl Morrill would, quote, be a third-string quarterback on the Jets. Aside from a nice drive that opened the game but produced only a missed field goal, Morrill actually did look like a third-stringer. He finished with only six completions on 17 attempts for 71 yards and three interceptions. Losing 16 to nothing late in the third quarter, Baltimore coach Don Shula decided he had seen enough and replaced Morrill with Johnny Unitas, which is a little like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man showing up at the end of Ghostbusters. A three-time MVP, two-time champion, and ten-time All-Pro, Unitas was already a legend at this point in his career. But at 35 years old and with a tennis elbow that kept him on the bench all season, he was more or less running on fumes. Still, he immediately led the Colts to their only touchdown, completing four passes on an 80-yard drive. Everybody, including Namath, wondered if the game would start to turn at this point. NFL Films impresario Steve Sable admitted later that he had cameras fixed on Unitas ready to document what was sure to be an incredible comeback story. But that story never materialized. Namath didn't throw a pass in the fourth quarter at all, as Snell chewed up the clock on the ground. Unitas completed a few more passes, but couldn't get the Colts into the end zone, even after Baltimore recovered an onside kick. After the game, the Jets didn't even have champagne waiting for them in the locker room. It would show up eventually, but by then the point was made. An AFL team had proven that it could beat an NFL team. The upstart league was no longer a joke. The Chiefs would whip the Minnesota Vikings 23-7 a year later in Super Bowl IV. Right after that, the AFL and NFL would merge, bringing the entire football world together. And the first Super Bowl champions after the merger? Johnny Unitas, Earl Morrill, and the 1970 Baltimore Colts. Don Shula, who coached the Colts in that loss to the Jets, also recovered pretty well. He went on to lead the Miami Dolphins to -to back-to-back Super Bowl victories, including the still-unsurpassed, undefeated season of 1972. So, he's kind of a big deal in Florida. And in season one's That's No Lady, written by Liz Sage and directed by Jim Drake, Blanche explains how Shula is good for something other than winning football games. I'm just having a snack. Dorothy's the one having an affair at a motel. (laughs) Thank you, Rose. I just want to keep the record straight. Besides, Blanche has had experience in that area. Maybe she can give you some advice. Oh, I certainly can. In the first place, never check in as Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Always check in as Mr. and Mrs. Don Shula. What? That way you always get a complimentary fruit basket and a bottle of champagne. Shula played defensive back at John Carroll University before heading to the NFL, where he played for Cleveland, Baltimore, and Washington. After a stint as a coordinator with the Lions, he was named head coach of the Colts in 1960. They achieved great success as a franchise, but that loss in Super Bowl III was a tough one to get over. In 1970, he left for Miami, and he spent 26 often very successful seasons on the Dolphins' sidelines. Shula took the team to four Super Bowls, and they only had two losing seasons under his guidance. He's just one of two coaches in NFL history to amass 300 victories, along with Bears coach George Hallis. And there might be a steakhouse or restaurant with his name on it in a town near you. The Jets, of course, have never been back to the Super Bowl since 1969. 
as a Jets fan myself, the irony is never lost on me that the team's one championship happens to be one of the most important games in football history. That doesn't really make the 47 years of near-constant failure that followed Super Bowl III any easier to take, but it does mean that my team will at least show up in some archival footage every now and again. Winning Super Bowl III didn't just raise the profiles of the AFL and the Jets, but also of Joe Namath. With a championship in his pocket, Namath was able to take his Broadway Joe brand beyond New York and into other ventures. He owned a bar called Bachelors 3 that the NFL wanted him to get out of because of the mobsters that supposedly hung out there. Rather than sell his stake, Namath abruptly retired in defiance just six months after winning the Super Bowl. A month later, he unretired, sold his stake in Bachelors 3, and was back on the Jets to start the next season. In the next few years, he stopped by talk shows hosted by Joey Bishop, Dick Cavett, and Merv Griffin, got his own talk show called The Joe Namath Show for a season, sat for long interviews with Playboy and Cosmopolitan, and, most infamously, wore pantyhose in a series of TV commercials. Those ads were also referenced on The Golden Girls. In Season 3's Larceny and Old Lace, written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss from a story by Jeffrey Farrow and Frederick Weiss, the girls are playing Trivial Pursuit when Blanche turns a simple question into a tawdry confessional. Blanche, you landed on sports. Here's the question. What famous football player wore pantyhose, Doug Kurloff, Tampa Bay Bucks, New Year's Eve? We were at the Holiday Inn near the airport. <laughs> the complete question is, wore pantyhose in a magazine advertisement? Well, how the hell would I know? If I want to see a man in pantyhose, I don't have to go out and buy a magazine. Joe Namath, your turn, Rose. By the way, Larceny and Old Lace is the episode in which Sophia dates an old mafia wise guy played by Mickey Rooney. We'll talk about him again in a later episode. And the Trivial Pursuit game the girls actually play? Well, they use a sorry board for it. Kind of drives me crazy every time I see it. Namath's ad campaign for Haynes Beauty Mist Pantyhose began in 1973. By then, Broadway Joe's best playing days were way behind him, and his knees had been reduced to balsa wood. The ironic thing about the Beauty Mist commercials is that his legs, which could barely manage to play half a season for the Jets at that point, were the focal points of the 30-second ads. Now, I don't wear pantyhose, but if Beauty Mist can make my legs look good, imagine what they'll do for yours. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, everything looks better through Beauty Mist. Namath also did ads for recliners and popcorn poppers and Ovaltine and Dingo Boots and shaving cream and typewriters and Brute Cologne, but nobody really remembers those that much. Haynes did sell a bunch more pantyhose, and their check cleared, but Namath wasn't a fan of the spots. He told Adweek in 2012, quote, I didn't go back and look at it again for a long, long time, but it was big. In 1976, Broadway Joe and his wonky knees took their act across the country. The then 34-year-old quarterback was waived by the Jets, and he inked a $150,000 contract with the Los Angeles Rams, who had a very good but not great team at the time. Joe Namath did not make them a great team. They went 2-2 in his four games as a starter, and after a punishing loss to the Bears on Monday Night Football, in which he threw four interceptions, Broadway Joe hung up his cleats for good. But his move to Los Angeles helped him transition to show business full-time, which is something Namath had wanted to do anyway. Although his, quote, acting career usually involved playing either himself or a version of himself in TV shows like The Brady Bunch, The Love Boat, and Fantasy Island, 
Namath did find time to make some movies that were mostly awful. I remember watching Chattanooga Choo Choo as a kid because a local channel used to play it all the time and build Barbara Eden, George Kennedy, and Namath as its big stars. Uh, that movie is not good. The Rams themselves came up in an episode of The Golden Girls too. Great Expectations is the season five episode, also written by Bruce and Weiss, in which Rose joins a positive thinking support group. She drags a reluctant Dorothy and Sophia to a meeting, and to her surprise, Dorothy starts thinking more optimistically, which leads to this exchange. I have some incredible news. You've been traded to the Rams. <laughs> the Rams are one of the NFL's true vagabond teams. They were founded in Cleveland in 1936 by owner Homer Marshman and player coach Buzz Wetzel, who named the team after the Rams of Fordham University. They first played in an early circuit called the American Football League before moving to the NFL in 1937. The Rams won the championship in December of 1945, but just a month later, new owner Dan Reeves announced he was moving the team to Los Angeles. Other NFL owners contested the move out of fear that a West Coast outpost would disrupt the traditionally Eastern Midwestern League. But the Rams struck a deal with the LA Coliseum Commission that allowed them to use the 100,000-seat stadium as long as they agreed to give opportunities to black players. And thus, the Los Angeles Rams became not only the NFL's first California team and the first professional team in the state, but also the first integrated team, signing black players 11 years before Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier. The Rams relocated from the L.A. Memorial Coliseum to Anaheim Stadium in 1980, a year after their loss to Pittsburgh in Super Bowl 16. But in 1995, after 50 years in Southern California, the Rams moved even further away. With the lease with Anaheim Stadium expired and in need of cash, owner Georgia Frontieri sold a portion of the team to businessman Stan Kroenke, who decided to decamp for St. Louis, which had agreed to build them a new stadium. Behind an unbelievable offense called The Greatest Show on Turf, the Rams won a surprise Super Bowl in 1999. But after another appearance in 2001, years of losing followed. Suddenly, that brand new stadium wasn't so brand new anymore, and Kroenke started making noise about needing a new one. St. Louis offered the team a $1.1 billion open-air stadium, but Kroenke declined, and the Rams were on the move again, back to Los Angeles, where an even more state-of-the-art stadium will be built for both the Rams and the San Diego Chargers, who are now the L.A. Chargers for the second time in their history. But that's a story for another time. For about a decade, the Rams shared Los Angeles with the Raiders, who moved from Oakland to the L.A. Coliseum in 1982. Their first few years there were very successful, including winning Super Bowl XVIII in 1984. But the Raiders' true golden age was the 1970s, when they were coached by a portly bundle of energy and football knowledge named John Med. And yep, he was mentioned on the Golden Girls too. In season two's Whose Face Is It Anyway, Blanche considers getting plastic surgery to look as good as she believes her old high school classmates look. This opens up a conversation about looks, and Sophia uses Madden as a savage punchline. Then I guess it's just that looking good isn't that important to me. Oh, come on. What are you talking about, Rose? You wear makeup, you have your nails done, you even color your hair. This is my hair's natural color. <laughs> yeah, and John Madden is a finicky eater. <laughs> Fat jokes aside, John Madden is one of the winningest coaches in NFL history, with a 10-year record of 103 wins, 32 losses, and 7 ties, all with Oakland. 
After his own football career ended with a knee injury in his rookie year with the Philadelphia Eagles, Madden got into coaching and started in the college ranks at Allen Hancock College in California and San Diego State before being named linebackers coach for the Raiders in 1967. Two years later, at the age of 32, he became Oakland's head coach and led the team to a 12-1-1 record. They won their division seven times and beat Minnesota 32-14 in Super Bowl XI. I don't know how much Madden weighed at the time, but his players sure had no problem carrying him off the field after that victory. Madden once said that coaching is more than a job. It's a way of life. And by 1978, that way of life was having an adverse effect on his health. So he retired from coaching and took his restless football brain to the broadcast booth, where he spent 30 years diagramming plays with a telestrator, spotlighting his favorite players and yelling, boom, every time he saw a play that got his blood pumping. Madden spent 22 years in the booth with Pat Summerall. The two were a study in contrast. Madden constantly agitated by something good or bad, and Summerall, the smooth, sonorous southerner who was never not in control of the game. But between the two of them was more football knowledge and enjoyment of the game than you could possibly quantify. When Summerall passed away in 2013, Madden delivered an emotional speech at his funeral. He called his partner a friend, a great broadcaster, and a great man, and said, quote, Pat Summerall is the voice of football and always will be, end quote. Madden famously suffers from a fear of flying, which first manifested itself in a panic attack he had in 1979. He specifies it as more about claustrophobia than anything else, and has traveled for work either by train or his tricked-out custom bus known as the Madden Cruiser ever since. If you grew up in the 70s, you probably know John Madden as a coach. If you grew up in the 80s, you probably knew him as a color commentator. But if you grew up in the 90s, you most definitely know him from the series of football video games that still bear his name. In 1984, Madden was approached by a man named Trip Hawkins, a former programmer for Apple that had started his own computer gaming company called Electronic Arts, or just EA for short. Madden listened to the pitch by Hawkins and his associate Joe Yabara and felt a video game using his expertise could be used as a coaching tool. He agreed to join the project as long as EA promised total realism, 11 players per side, NFL rules, real plays, realistic weather conditions, the works. These things were a lot harder to come by in an era when blocky, four-color, soundless, real sports football on the Atari 2600 was the best video game version of the sport that existed. The first version of John Madden football wasn't released until four years later on the Commodore 64 and Apple II. The Sega Genesis version was released in 1990, and that's when it went from mere video game to global phenomenon. The series continues to this day, and its release is an annual national holiday for gamers everywhere, including some NFLers who grew up playing it. The big complaint is that the game doesn't change much from year to year outside of the individual team rosters, but when you've gone from simple but good for their time graphics to a photorealistic presentation that recreates the look and feel of an actual NFL broadcast, sometimes a little too perfectly, what else is there to add? Madden also did a number of commercials during his broadcasting days. That includes ads for Miller Lite, Ace Hardware, and Tenactin Athlete's Foot Spray. Hey, you get a tough case of athlete's foot. The itching, the cracking, the burning. You want a medicine that acts tough. Boom! Tough actin Tenactin. Clinically proven Tenactin cures even tough cases of athlete's foot fungus. Get tough actin Tenactin. What does that have to do with the Golden Girls? I'm glad you asked. Believe it or not, 
Athlete's Foot was mentioned on an episode. In Strange Bedfellows, the season three episode written by Christopher Lloyd, Sophia tells a story in which simple foot fungus nearly tore her hometown apart. Picture this, Sicily, 1922. The village is in a terrible wine crisis. It's the peak of the wine season, and all our grape stompers are ravaged by an outbreak of athlete's foot. (laughs) Soon the Chianti has a green hue and tastes like Desinex. (laughs) They call in Sicily's foremost podiatrist, Bruno Bonafiglio. He's the one who prescribed arch supports for Mussolini. Must have really helped his lower back when they hung him by his heels. It's old news by now, but athlete's foot has nothing to do with being an athlete. You can pick up the fungus in a locker room or public pool, and the Cochrane Medical Library says that about 15% of the world's population does have it. Medicine like Tenactin or Desinex does help, but so can keeping your toenails short and wearing bigger shoes. And change your socks every day, for God's sakes. There's another random football joke in Strange Bedfellows, and I have no better place to put it than right here. The story centers around the girls and everyone else in their neighborhood believing that Blanche is having an affair with a nebbishy candidate for public office thanks to a misleading newspaper story. As always, Rose is the last one to figure it out, and while her brain works overtime to put two and two together, Sophia embraces her inner Pat Summerall. Rose Blanche is that little floozy. You... You mean he? She's at the 50, the, the 40, the 30. Blanche, it's you. Oh, you're getting so good at that, Rose. Now, who's that over there? Rue McClanahan was nominated for the Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for her work in Strange Bedfellows. The nebbishy candidate in the episode was played by John Shuck, who's had a very, very long acting career in a wide range of genres. He's been on Macmillan and Wife, The New Odd Couple, and a few different versions of both Law & Order and Star Trek. And he starred as Herman in the little-remembered 1980s Munsters revival, The Munsters Today. But his first film role was a very notable one, and it has a sports connection. As wartime dentist Dr. Painless Waldowski in Robert Altman's M.A.S.H., Shuck became the first actor to drop an F-bomb in a major motion picture, which happened during the movie's iconic football game. Your fucking head is coming right off. As Shuck tells it, an assistant director on MASH told him to just come up with something to insult the opposing player in front of him, who was played by former Raiders defensive end Ben Davidson. That was the first thing that came to Shuck's head, and it stuck. He didn't realize it was the first time anyone had said it in a movie, but before he knew it, he had made history. He said of that fuck, quote, It's a small thing, but it's mine, end quote. Big Daddy is a pretty good episode. Anytime one of the girl's relatives showed up, it was always 50-50 whether it would be funny or not. Big Daddy's a silly character, especially as played by Murray Hamilton trying to become a country singer, so it works. David Wayne's version of Big Daddy was a more serious take on the character, so he was less fun, even though his connection to the old Batman show always makes me smile. The battle the girls have with Gordon Jump is a great subplot. Some actors just excel at making exasperated frustration funny, and he is definitely one of them. You can just feel the simmering anger right below that bald scalp, and you just want to laugh right in his face. And I love the fact that the example Sophia gives for her curse working is the Jets winning the Super Bowl. After watching them bumble all over the field all these years afterwards, it kind of makes you wonder if there was some black magic involved in Super Bowl III. 
Next time on Golden Girl Sports, it's our third feature episode. We'll take a look back at the unusual career and immediate superstardom of Estelle Getty, who delighted viewers while living in a personal hell on the set of her greatest role. Golden Girl Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>